trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Now, you're going to think I'm weird when I tell you this, but uh, I'm excited. I get happy every time I get the chance to sit down, crack open this microphone, and share with you the most carefully collected, thoroughly vetted, well, at least as far as time allows, information that I can get my hands on in between, uh, you know, each, uh, each episode of the program. And literally, that's what I spend my time doing. I spend the day just, you know, not necessarily glued to a screen, but I am always looking for great information. And I do this with the intent of helping you and myself at the same time think as clearly and independently as possible. Because we are in a time of crisis on any number of levels, and I really believe that is the most important duty that we have as citizens, as children of God, as fellow human beings. Now, thankfully, I have some wonderful sponsors who help to make this possible on a daily basis. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and LifesavingFood.com. You know, like you, I sometimes sit back and just think, man, I can't believe how complicated and how crazy things are getting and in such a huge hurry. And um, last night I I walked into the room and and my wife was watching, uh, I think she was watching a European newscast. I don't don't know where she picked it up, somewhere off of one of the the channels that comes over Roku. And it occurred to me, it has really been a long time since I've actually sat and watched a, a newscast or watched even, you know, for that matter, a great deal of TV. I was sitting working on some stuff and had, uh, I think a few weeks ago when things were were going down in Canada, I was uh, sitting there just doing my own thing. But in the background, I I was aware the TV was on the the CBC and uh, and then I was just shocked at the 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 blatant, um, I guess I'll just call it what it is, propaganda, the the spin that was pushed on every single story and the distortion that seemed so apparent. And it, it appears it's this is almost universal. It seems like every mass media source has its agenda. And I'm sorry if that disappoints you, Fox News. Sorry, but, uh, you know, you guys do it too. So it leaves the rest of us in kind of a tricky situation. And on the one hand, I think it's good advice when people tell you, you know what, just turn off the TV. I think that's actually very solid advice in the sense that if you've reached that point of diminishing returns where what you watch or what you consume, whether it's on TV or whether it's, you know, through your computer or phone screen, if what you're watching is raising your levels of anxiety, at some level, you've got to be willing to step back and say, okay, is this, is this actually doing something good for me or is it just feeding my fears? Is it just, you know, uh, playing to my anger or to my hatred? Because in some cases, it really does seem to steer us toward hatred. I mean, come on, people dumping out bottles of vodka to register. Look, look what a good person I am. I stand with Ukraine. Look, stand with Ukraine. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, have some awareness of when your chain is being pulled. 
because it's it's a lot more than I think most people would would recognize unless they're actively paying attention to it. And so much of the manipulation is so toxic. It's uh, it's really tough to know who to who or what to believe these days. And so sometimes the best choice is turn the TV off. Take a break. Go outside, get some sunlight, move around, talk to people in your life. Do a little media fast every so often and you'll be amazed how quickly the world starts looking normal once again. Now I know there's the fear of O'Brien, we might miss something really important that happens. Trust me, if it's important enough, not only will you find out about it, but you will also find if it's that important to you, you will be motivated to do your own research and do your own homework. And quite possibly, depending on how important it is to you, you'll be willing to pay the price to become a legitimate expert on something. Uh, pro tip, it doesn't all have to be political. I know. We've been trained to think that this is, this is what life is about. It's all about politics. Not necessarily. In fact, I want to I take a little uh, diversion here just to kind of illustrate this point. Social media. Yes, I use it. And I also hate it. So there's this love-hate relationship. But what is it doing, particularly to young people? Is it a curse or is it a blessing? Now, before you answer that question, I want you to hear Kent McManigal's take on social media, how it's doing invisible damage to our youth. He says, throughout history, the older generation has thought the younger generations are weak, frivolous, self-centered. You probably need a haircut. Just as that older generation's elders thought the same of it, and so on to the beginnings of our species. But he says it's time to break the cycle with some reality. And I agree with him on this. Young people are not much different from generation to generation. You and I were just as foolish when we were young as were our grandparents. Only the details of our foolishness differed. The point is we grew up and we found ways to be foolish, mature people. And the problem isn't with young people of any era. It's the world they find themselves living in. Now, growing up during war or famine or a plague, a real one like the Black Death, not an overreaction like COVID, is going to affect the development of young people more than it affects the lives of the older generations. His point being, it's easier to damage a seedling than a mature tree. But he says the thing most damaging to youth today is the deceptively named plague of social media. It's as bad as war or pestilence. But like famine or disease, there's no point in throwing blame. Your energy is better spent helping the affected learn to live in spite of the trouble around them. See, most people will just, most young people actually, will overcome and go on. Many will not. Those most susceptible to the opinions of others are at a disadvantage, just as those too weak to hunt for food were at a disadvantage in hunter-gatherer societies. Now, if you saw someone in trouble, whether starving or injured, you'd help. But social media injury isn't always so obvious. Symptoms of this damage, also known as wokeness, include identity problems, racism sold as anti-racism, and a call for everyone to be exactly equal, not in rights, but in outcomes. This often results in a reliance on government to fix everything with legislation or handing out money it doesn't actually have. And it leaves scars as real as a missing limb, a bullet wound, or even a head injury. Now, he says he was encouraged uh, by the recent report of four Clovis, New Mexico teenagers who came to the aid of another young person who had just been injured in an accident. Instead of just taking pictures of the scene and posting them to social media, as has happened in other emergencies around the world, 
they jumped into action and helped. And he says, in the end, we'll be fine because they'll be fine. He's got a good point. My wife is a uh, junior high math teacher. And so she has seen this a little more keenly than I have. But it's been very interesting over the last couple of years, particularly, to note the number of young people who are really struggling, some to the point of, uh, you know, dealing with suicidal ideation and, and really serious issues. And I'm not trying to wax scientific on this because this is just an observation, but social media seems to exacerbate a lot of the pressure and anxiety felt by young people today. And, and if you think about it, this actually would make sense. You know, the, the pressure, look, junior high, if there was a time I could ever block something out of my mind about to just, I had just enough autonomy to make a lot of my own decisions and just enough stupidity to make sure that most of them were really bad ones. So it was, that was not a time that I would want to repeat. But that was without social media. With social media, every imperfection, every mistake is amplified. And, of course, it's contrasted with everybody who's living their best life online and, you know, flexing in whatever way they want to flex about, you know, the latest, greatest uh, aspect of their life. Look how much better my life is than yours. I can see where that would put some pressure on, on young people. Now, there's, there's another aspect here, and I'm just going to add this as kind of an addendum. It's not just the young people who, who do this, but you'll see a lot of adults who like to jump on the bandwagon. I really don't have to give you an example because you probably could look at uh, any number of people's you know, social media feeds right now and see, oh, look, they're, they're signaling how good, how virtuous they are, how they support the right cause. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm not condemning anybody, but I am going to say there is a world of difference between signaling to the world and putting effort into showing the world what a great person you are and actually just being a good person. I mean, living an upright life. In fact, it requires so much more effort to do that latter part that most people opt for the, the quick fix. Well, if I post this, you know, meme on my on my uh, timeline or if I if I put this banner around my avatar, people will have to know that I'm a good person. You know how else they could know you're a good person? Simply by watching you live your life where you're paying the price to be a good person instead of trying to signal it to everybody. I know it, it sounds a bit judgmental. I'll work on it. But I still think it's true. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm happy to uh, bring Caleb Franz back on board. This is, this is our uh, semi-monthly segment History in Action. Caleb, of course, is uh, from Young Voices, as well as he's the host of uh, Profiles in Liberty. And, Caleb, I understand we have kind of an important anniversary coming up uh, this weekend. That's right. Uh, for those who, who don't know, that uh, this Saturday, uh, March 5th, is going to be the anniversary of the Boston Massacre, or, uh, or the Bloody Massacre, as it was sometimes referred to back then. And there's there's a lot that uh, that uh, obviously went into the the lead up to the American Revolution. It was it was by no means an overnight thing. There were a lot of instances that happened 
um, that led to that uh, that spark that eventually happened in, in 1775. Uh, and this was perhaps one of the biggest ones that solidified that direction. Uh, and and in, in a lot of ways, it also was a defining moment in, in American history that uh, confirmed that we wouldn't go more of a French direction with our revolution, uh, making sure that um, the American Revolution truly stayed on the course with, uh, with the direction of, of the ideas of liberty and justice and not the ideas of vengeance and of passions. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the actions of, uh, of a young lawyer named John Adams at the time, mm. uh, being able to, to resist the, the mass, uh, the mass uh, passions of, of the Massachusetts society in, in those days and to do the unthinkable of defending British troops in, in a Massachusetts uh, in a Massachusetts uh, society, uh, and I think that gives us a lot of things that we can work with today, uh, with uh, with a lot of the uh, issues that we deal with. Well, but they didn't have Twitter mobs. Okay, no, no, no. Never no. mind. Let's, let's talk <laughs> with with a name like Boston. Can't be Massacre. worse than Twitter mobs, of course. Right. But with a name like Boston Massacre, I mean, right there, just with the fact that people, oh, the Boston Massacre. That sounds really horrific. Can you kind of flesh out what exactly happened, and and then let's talk let's talk about the aftermath. Yeah. So uh, in 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 seventeen seventy, uh, there was a lot that was going into the the build up to this. Um, we obviously there was things like the Stamp Act and the and the Townsend Acts that really angered uh, a lot of people throughout the colonies, but specifically in Boston because because these acts. Um, usually uh, affected uh, the people of Boston more so than, say, the people in, in high society in, in Tidewater, Virginia, or, or somewhere like that. Um, so these, these people in, in Boston uh, usually got particularly angry. Uh, and after the Townsend Acts, which sort of solidified the tax on tea that we think of, uh, they, the British uh, sent troops to Boston to enforce this, which only escalated tensions. Um, which lead us to the uh, the winter of 1770 and February. There was a situation with a um, a patriot mob going through and uh, getting very angry and, and confronting this loyalist uh, this this uh, this loyalist store owner who fired into a crowd uh, to try to get them to to back down and to stop. And he uh, his his uh, fire eventually hit a an 11 year old boy. Uh, and killed him, and that all, obviously only Whoops. only angered the uh, the Patriots even more, uh, which leads us to the setup of what we see in the Boston uh, massacre on uh, March fifth. Um, from there, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, really, today even we we don't even know the circumstances entirely of of how things transpired, but essentially. Um, another Patriot mob was starting to form uh, around these these soldiers, these British soldiers, uh, and uh, somebody uh, heard someone say fire. Nobody is really sure if if that came from the British troops or if it came from the mob, uh, sort of prodding them and challenging them to fire, uh, daring them, if you will. Uh, but eventually that's, that's essentially what, what happened is, is someone, uh, is, is someone fired. And then all of the, uh, all the troops that were present there, uh, followed suit and fired into the crowd, 
Uh, and the big question was, was this cold-blooded murder or was this something that was uh, a tragedy that could have easily been avoided but not not a massacre uh, by, by any stretch of the imagination? Um, and that was the big question mark around this. But for people like Samuel Adams and for people like Paul Revere, uh, the, the question was already answered in their minds. Uh, and they, they started this mass propaganda campaign around the idea of this was a massacre. The, the image that we see today uh, of uh, British troops laying fire into a, a Boston crowd that was uh, engraved by, by Paul Revere to help uh, sort of promote this idea that these cold-blooded killers just unleashed into this crowd. Um, and ironically enough, it was Samuel Adams' uh, cousin, John Adams, uh, was the only one willing to sort of put his foot down and uh, take them up and defend the British on trial, uh, which was a very risky an unpopular thing to do. And, and for him himself, he was a patriot. He, he did not like what was happening to, to what the British was doing to uh, Boston uh, society and Massachusetts society. So it was, it, was a, it was a very tough situation for him to be in. Um, but one of my, my favorite quotes of, of John Adams to, to come out of this situation was that facts are stubborn things and that <laughs> no matter the dictates of our passions, and they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And that was the standard that he held himself to. And by extension, uh, he held America to very early on uh, in the American Revolution. I'm almost comforted a little bit to hear that uh, the mob mentality isn't something that's just a part of our time. I guess this is part of human nature. but It is, yeah. This is just another example of why to be careful of it, because it can really run away with you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, right after the, the Boston Massacre happened, there was there was this mass propaganda campaign essentially on both sides. Uh, the, the British uh, in, in Great Britain were, were very quick to make the, the patriots look like they were um, these, this vicious mob and uh, trying to prod them into a, uh, a terrible situation. Patriots, obviously, as I had mentioned, uh, were very quick to make the British look like they were these, these cold-blooded killers, which was uh, not a far stretch for a lot of people to come to that kind of a conclusion. Um, so there was a lot of disinformation uh, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of propaganda campaign on all sides. And what John Adams did was take a step back and say, I don't know necessarily what the right answer is. I don't know if we will ever know what the right answer is. But we need to rely on what the facts say and not lean into the dictates of, of what may feel good to us at the moment. Uh, what we may think as is, is, is the morally right answer or, or uh, the, the answer that needs to uh, that, that warrants justification in some capacity. But it, it ultimately will lead to uh, more harm than good. And, and that's something I think is a, is a lesson that we can certainly apply to a lot of things that we, we deal with today. Yep. I know there's a lot of news headlines right now that have people really ginned up, you know, in their particular camps. It's this way. It's this way. Um, mm-hmm. Might not be a bad idea to, to do some checking of the facts and also um, know that due process has its place. Diplomacy has its place as opposed yeah. to just simply the mob. Talk. Yeah, I, I think I think between, you know, I think between everything that's happening uh currently with Russia and and Ukraine as well as, you know, just everything that we've experienced over the past 2 years with COVID, 
Um, there's, there's a lot, it's, it's really easy to just fall into the trap of like, I know this is right. right. It feels right. Um, and like, I've been there, it, it, it's, it's really tempting, but we have to resist that temptation. And that's sort of the lesson that, that John Adams was able to, to provide for us. Caleb, tell everybody where they can find your podcast profiles in Liberty. Profiles in Liberty, uh, you can get it anywhere where uh, podcasts are available. I actually dive deep into this story in particular on the second episode of season one, uh, where I cover John Adams uh, in depth. Um, So if you want to hear that full story, uh, be sure to go back and listen to it. Okay, I'll provide a link in the show notes. Caleb Franz, thank you so much for joining us. I'll look forward to our next conversation on history in action. As always, Brian, thank you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you are happening to be on the move, if you if you are relocating, to the great state of Utah, and you're looking to uh, purchase a home, I would encourage you, please, get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Let them be the ones to secure that loan for you, whether it's a VA loan, whether it's a reverse mortgage, a traditional loan, even if you're just going to refinance your existing loan. This is this is the, the company you need to talk to. Heather and her team are the ones who have the stability, the clout, and most importantly, the experience to help you get the loan you need without delay. I've made this easy for you. In my show notes, you'll find a link under the sponsor links. It's her email. Click on it. It'll take you right to her email. You can contact her that way. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I know with the uh, Ukraine war that's going on that uh, there's some interesting stuff that not a lot of people are talking about. Uh, For instance, there was a big release, I think 400 pages of uh, data from Pfizer that came out because of a court order that seems to show that there is some hinkiness with some of the data and some of the studies that were done prior to uh, the release of the Pfizer COVID vaccine. You would think that would be pretty big news, but for some reason, hmm, nobody really wants to talk about it. Something else that is making news, although it's not being talked about in the news, is uh, an unusual spike in the in all deaths of people ages 18 to 64 during the last half of 2021. Let's take a deeper dive into this subject. Thankfully, the American Institute for Economic Research has some marvelous researchers. Robert E. Wright has uh, written a column about this. And he says, a year ago, I explained that the U.S. life insurance industry survived the first phase of the pandemic despite deaths increasing from 2.85 million in 2019 to 3.39 million in 2020. Fearful Americans bought more life insurance, and most of those who died from COVID-19 were old and expected to die soon, in a statistical sense anyway. Essentially, their individual life insurance policies had been bought and paid for. Now that overall deaths ticked up slightly in 2021 to 3.42 million, would not therefore seem troubling. In the second half of the year, however, mortality unexpectedly spiked among working Americans covered by group policies through their employers. And that is shocking 
because the idea behind group life is that the mortality rate of working adults is both low and stable. Premiums in that highly competitive segment of the industry are accordingly low with little margin for error. Now, if you count on life insurance to protect your loved ones in the event of your death, though, he says, don't fret yet. Reinsurers and regulators still assure policyholders that all death claims will be quickly paid to beneficiaries as usual. But the scary aspect of the spike right now, then, is not the threat of the life insurance industry collapse. It's the co- that the cause of that spike remains, as one industry analyst put it, murky. Now, some actuaries suggest that the spike protein caused the spike. In other words, COVID-19 deaths are being undercounted and explain most of the rise in excess or predicted mortality. But Robert E. Wright says the undercount hypothesis might make sense if the pandemic had not become so politicized. If the hypothesis is plausible, however, the remaining COVID quacks would push the narrative that, well, the disease is now killing large numbers of workers in order to justify more mandates and Trudeau-esque repression of civil liberties. But he says, unfortunately, insurers generally do not investigate the cause of death, which is one reason why he has called for special COVID-19 insurance policies or at least riders at the beginning of the pandemic. Robert Wright says insurers have no immediate incentive to sniff out cause of death because they have to pay regardless of cause, with a few exceptions like suicide soon after policy issuance. But he says life insurers are starting to think about increasing premiums, and that is where matters could get interesting, because then they will have to take a stand on what is causing excess mortality. COVID-19 itself or the public health responses to COVID-19? In the former case, they should base premiums for new policyholders on group policies, which are usually repriced annually on vaccination status. But in the latter case, he says insurers will have to discern if they can get more detailed data from the CDC, the extent to which COVID-19 public health interventions are killing people. Maybe it's the combined stress of the last two years from masking faces to masking the truth. Maybe it's the stress plus fewer visits to the doctor. Or maybe one particular intervention is mostly to blame. Maybe one loudly touted as safe and effective that remains shrouded in statistical obscurity and shielded from the objective scrutiny of liability insurers. He says one would think that life insurers, both publicly traded ones and mutuals, and their research arms like the Society of Actuaries and LIMRA would push government officials for data sufficient to tease out the causes of excess mortality. After all, they owe it to their stockholders, policyholders, and clients to set premiums rationally. Insurance regulators should also push for proper data disclosure so they can do their job of protecting the industry and its millions of beneficiaries. He says, think of how glorious it would be for America's PHOs, that's public health officials, if objective third-party observers with real skin in the game and no incentive to follow CDC dictates reject the hypothesis that vaccines and or other public health policies are responsible for the recent spate of excess deaths. They could bask in the glory of showing that truckers, America's frontline Frontline doctors and other COVID-19 vaccine skeptics are not just wrong-headed, but empirically wrong. If only to reduce rational fears that they've been captured by Big Pharma, one would think that Fauci and company would strongly encourage life insurers to investigate the matter. He's got a point. 
But Robert E. Wright says perhaps, though, the fact that life insurance actuaries are highly qualified, independent analysts of mortality and regulated primarily at the state, not the national level, has made America's public health officers reticent to encourage actuarial analysis. Provided proper data, life actuaries might discover something damning about our public health policies and have incentives to act on it. So imagine if other underwriting variables like age equal, locked down Californians had to pay higher premiums than free Floridians, or if premiums went up with each booster shot. Those increases would be difficult to blame credibly on greedy corporations. Interesting thought. And I have to, I have to give credit. I think uh, Robert Wright does, uh, does some very, uh, he does some very deft moving around a very touchy subject filled with, with you know, trigger words that, uh, that some people will immediately shut down or put up their defensive shields. He's not going to come off as some rabid anti-vaxxer here, but he's definitely asking the question, you know, why, why shouldn't this be looked at more closely? But it kind of comes back to the whole idea of, you know, if, if this really is the panacea that we were told that it was, speaking of, of vaccines, especially the COVID vaccine, if it's, if it's really so good, if it's such a good idea that it really should be implemented by force, which apparently was uh, something, a uh, belief held by many politicians at many different levels, then why not let the, the pharmaceutical companies who created these vaccines release the data? Why give them 50 years worth of shield, or at least the attempted shielding? No, 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 we can't uh, release that information until everybody alive right now who cares about it is dead. That just doesn't seem reasonable. I know this. I'm sorry if this sounds like a brag or a flex, but the longer I held out and the longer I have refused to go along with the vaccine mandates, the more grateful I am that I did so. And I'm not looking down on anybody who did it for whatever reason. You know, if you were a true believer and all of we, this is all of us doing our part, or if you were just like, I got to keep my job, or I'm just going to be pragmatic and take the shot, believing that it's going to do what it's intended to do. But I've talked to a lot of folks who have buyer's remorse for doing so. And knock on wood, thankfully, nobody that I know personally has, you know, suffered, you know, some kind of untimely death, presumably due to their vaccination. I've known a few people who've had adverse reactions that seem to be pretty short-lived, but I'll say it again. I'm so grateful that I held out even as it was getting more and more uncomfortable. And frankly, I look at the people who put so much more on the line, people who literally had to choose between their jobs or, you know, family relationships. How many families were damaged? By Well, we'd love to get together with everybody at Christmas this year, but, you know, if you're not vaccinated, I don't know that we can really do that. Now it turns out that uh, that may have been a lot of wasted effort in terms of, you know, being upright with uh, the current health policies. All it cost me was, you know, one more Christmas with family members or, you know, perhaps the ability to be with family members as they approach end of life. I guess the bottom line here is it's good to be skeptical. It's even better to know what your rights are and be willing to stand for them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Did you know that right now you could could really score at lifesavingfood.com? I'm going to share with you the, uh, this is the, the deal that I'm highlighting for my listeners that I hope you will act on. And it is a uh, 45% savings on ReadyWise food. In particular, this is the 240 serving entree, brec- or entree and breakfast package. Two buckets, 120 servings in each. That's a 30-day food supply for one person. Normal price, $578.99. The ReadyWise.com price, $329.99. By the way, that includes free shipping. So please go to lifesavingfood.com. If you have been thinking, man, this might be a good time to stock up on stuff. Actually, in the next hour, I'm going to be talking about some of the things that we could or should be and should be doing to prepare for the remainder of 2022. Some advice from Dr. Robert Malone. Food storage is part of that. You probably already had figured that out. Anyway, go to lifesavingfood.com. All right, I'm going to go ahead and reach out and touch the third rail here just because I I know that uh, right now there's a great deal of controversy swirling about about Russia versus Ukraine. And and to me, there's a certain comic book quality to the narrative that is coming out. And I mean this on all sides. Now, um, I'm sorry I'm going to sound like uh, like I am a Putin stooge here when I say this, but Russia doesn't seem to be putting a whole lot of effort into trying to control the narrative. Or at least maybe maybe they've just effectively blocked all all Russian news sources or whatever. Um, it's it's crazy the the backlash against just Russians in particular. Oh, this Russian conductor of this uh, this uh, orchestra was removed from his position. Why? Because he wouldn't publicly say what we want him to say or denounce something. Um, folks, governments are behind the conflict, and we need to distinguish between governments and the people. There are perfectly good Russian people, and to compartmentalize all of them, well, they should have uh, they should have thrown off Putin when they had the chance. Yeah, the same could be said for you and me. So, ease up there, Tex. You know, we there's a little bit of nuance that's at play here, but it's the politicians primarily who are to blame here. Jordan Schachtel actually has a really excellent essay about how the case of Russia versus Ukraine is less a matter of good versus evil. And it's more like two kleptocratic shades of gray. He says there are geopolitical realities and then there are ideological frameworks and constructs that don't bear any resemblance to reality. And in America today, we are dealing with the latter framework through shoddy, biased war reporting presented to us by the corporate media and our ruling class, which insists upon a dichotomy that doesn't exist. So he says, let's talk about reality, detached from all the morality signaling on social media and TV. He says, though Russia is the aggressor and is therefore responsible for most of the violence and suffering in Ukraine, this does not mean Ukraine can suddenly be labeled as an extension to American founding ideals. We, the free people of the world, can absolutely support a country that is currently defending itself. But we don't need to pretend that Ukraine is something that it's not. Ukraine and Russia may sport separate flags, and they might currently play for different great power teams, but the two nations are not so different, after all. On the governance scale, both countries rank as two of the most kleptocratic and corrupted countries on Earth. So in Russia, oligarchs have heavy sway over the economy and politics of the nation. 
Well, the same applies in Ukraine, where the sitting president was elected as the mere patron of a powerful oligarch. Jordan Schachtel says the average Ukrainian struggles mightily under this unfair, broken system. Ukraine is a country of abject poverty where the average citizen earns around 3700 bucks a year. Now, in 2021, Ukraine's President Zelensky, facing declining poll ratings, took it upon himself to place his foremost political rival under house arrest while shutting down opposition television networks, all in the name of national security. Now, why don't Russia and Ukraine get along? Well, sometimes they do. Ukrainians often elect both pro-West and pro-Russia candidates to higher office. Western governments in recent history have not supported when the latter situation occurs, sometimes fomenting clandestine color revolutions to seek their exit from politics from, from politics in Ukraine. He writes, long-standing tribalism, historical disputes, and committed atrocities are also responsible for a fierce dislike between some Ukrainians and Russians. The Soviet Union, through genocide, famine, and other means, committed unspeakable atrocities against the Ukrainian people. And because of this, some Ukrainians understandably resent the USSR's progeny in their Slavic cousins to the east. But again, the idea that Ukraine is a Jeffersonian democracy scoring off against the evil bear empire in Russia is simply false. Jordan Schachtel says we read a lot about Putin's authoritarianism in the news, but we do not hear much about the troubles within Ukraine, most likely because it's less consequential on the world stage. And during the current Russia-Ukraine squabble, Kiev has, for its part, spawned some troublesome ideologies within its own ranks. Case in point, uh, have you seen where Ukraine's Special Operations Command just issued a warning to Russian soldiers that they will not be taken prisoners and will be slaughtered like pigs without the option of surrendering? That sounds like a public admission of a war crime. Now, Jordan Schachtel says Ukrainian leaders seem committed to trying to drag their Western partners into face-to-face conflict with Russia. Ukrainian politicians have a lot to lose, including potentially their lives. So their desperation is somewhat understandable. And he says Ukraine might be winning the propaganda war, but the war on the ground tells a different story. Russia continues to secure access to the sea, and it will soon succeed in completely cutting off Ukrainian forces. Russia might be facing heavy sanctions, but its armies continue vacuuming up territory in Ukraine. Oddly enough, and this is I'm looking at a map that he includes in this article, the Russian advances and maneuvers, I mean, we're told that, oh, yes, that's, yeah, they're totally, they're, they're inept, their equipment's outdated, everybody's demoralized, they're, they're just uh, failing on every level. Well, you look at this map and it's like, I don't know. This looks like they're going to cut off Odessa. They're going to surround the Ukrainians in the east, but are showing no interest in western Ukraine. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like, you know, maybe the, the interest primarily was neutralizing the ability of Ukraine to harass those breakaway provinces in the east. And also neutralizing its ability to militarily threaten or, you know, allow military threats to develop there that would be threatening to Russia. Just, you know, hypothetically. Jordan Schachtel says so far, NATO, meaning the United States military, has rejected intervening. And he says they should not intervene because World War III is not worth it. But powerful Western interests in Washington, D.C. and Brussels are attempting to use Ukrainians as pawns for a longstanding political campaign against Moscow. 
The massive weapons shipments continue to arrive in western Ukraine with hopes that Ukrainians will use them in a long campaign against Russia. And he says, I hope Ukrainians recognize this and refuse to act as human sacrifices for these campaigns. Ukraine facing a tug of war between Russia and the West has a way out of this mess if only its leaders choose to accept the reality it is facing. Now, Putin's terms are pretty straightforward. Number one, recognition of Crimea as part of Russia. Number two, the demilitarization of Ukraine. Now, given that this is Russia's initial approach, Ukraine can probably find some flexibility on the second demand. Though key to the agreement will come through Ukraine recognizing some geopolitical realities, like the fact that Crimea is most certainly gone, and that the pro-Russia separatist regions in Ukraine want nothing to do with Ukraine. Since its modern recognition in 1991, Ukraine has has remained bogged down by corruption, bad governance, and damaging foreign influence. Jordan Schachtel says should Ukraine truly commit to remaining neutral, the country can reset relations with its neighbors and one day become a free and prosperous nation. Now again, you're free to disagree with this, but I offer this to you simply because this is one viewpoint that I believe is, is worth considering. Whether you adopt it or not, that's, uh, that's on you. That's up to you. But it's not being talked about by any of our heritage media sources. Why is that? Why are we only being allowed to see one particular side of this and a very cartoonish depiction of that side at that? Don't you find that just a little bit insulting? I mean, this, this is just, most of the news coverage right now of the Ukraine and Russian conflict is about one step above someone drew us a pretty picture with crayons and then handed us a ball, patted us on the head and said, run along and play. Grown-ups are talking. Yeah, if you want to know what's going on, you're going to have to be willing to bump into ideas that may not be comfortable. You may be, you may be required to consider ideas that directly challenge whatever viewpoint you currently hold. My question for you is, is it worth it in the end to have a better grasp of what's going on in the world and above all to avoid being either misled or misinformed or to uh, become yourself a source of misinformation, you know, through just, you know, parroting what I heard from this or that news outlet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a place where you can actually think for yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that all I'm going to tell you are things you already agree with. I'm not going to sit here and just, you know, fill your ears with warm, fluffy, comforting statements that may or may not be true because we all feel more comfortable when our worldview is affirmed. So I'm not trying to play to your your biases, but I am definitely trying to uh, put some information out there that, that you're not likely to encounter Unless, uh, unless you're really serious about looking for a broader picture of what's going on. It's not that I have all the answers, because I most certainly don't. 
But I think it's helpful sometimes to take a couple of steps one direction or another and just see if a different vantage point doesn't offer a more complete understanding of what we're facing. With that in mind, I want to thank my sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, and also hslammo.com, as well as the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. By the way, there's something that happened yesterday. I'm just going to mention this in passing, but if you want an illustration of how threatened the ruling class is by words that appear right at the beginning of the Constitution, this happened in Utah yesterday. Apparently there was a hearing, and uh, a guy showed up with a shirt that said, We the People, across it. And uh, Senator Dan McKay, who this is in Utah. This is a freedom-loving state ostensibly with people who really, you know, are, are in tune with, you know, we, we respect freedom and we have limited government. But this person was removed from the meeting. And uh, UHP troopers came and took the guy to a detention room down in the basement of the Capitol and held him there for about an hour, handcuffed with about five officers before releasing him without, uh, I, don't, I don't remember if they charged him or not. I'm sorry, I don't have the news story in front of me, but... He had a sticker on before and was told to remove it. Others were told to remove stickers. But because he had a shirt that said, we the people, that was deemed a political statement. Now, look, as far as political statements go, you know, if somebody shows up in a, in a hearing with an F the police, you know, uh, shirt on, I could say, okay, that's disruptive. That's, it's profane. It's, that's, you know, that's going to disturb the peace. But a reminder that we the people are the ultimate source of political power and we only delegate a tiny portion of that power to representatives whom we elect and we trust and we make swear an oath to act in the interests of we the people. Seriously, that is seen as disruptive in a political statement and guards, clap him in irons, take him away, take him to the dungeon. It's a pretty nice dungeon, but... If that, if, if that doesn't convince you that something is terribly askew, and again, this is not happening in California, it's not happening in Oregon, places where I would expect that kind of, you know, authoritarian, you will not question those who are in charge. This happened in Utah. And with, with a senator, a state senator who actually has a pretty impressive background as, as a supporter of freedom. I think the political class is getting pretty paranoid right now. I think they sense that the people are tired of being backed into a corner and they worry that the people are going to put their foot down and tell them enough. Well, that's, that's a possibility. But it's disturbing to see. And I, I don't know what to tell you. We the people, that's considered a political statement. What, reminding you that you are a servant rather than a master? I mean... Sorry, political class, but if you have a problem with that, maybe the problem is with you and not with these troublemakers, these parents showing up at school board meetings and wanting to know why you want to teach their kids, you know, mind-bending theories that are intended to distort their worldview and punish them for stuff that they haven't even done. All right, I feel like I'm going off on a rant. Let me rein that in. Let's, uh, Let's talk about inflation. I know that most of us are feeling the effects of inflation in a lot of different areas right now. Heaven help you if, you if you have bought a car recently. Holy cow, new or used. It's crazy. 
Grocery shopping for me is usually the eye-opener just because I know where I can find a good deal. Hey, you know, that bacon is uh, always a pretty good price, and so I maybe I'll stock up, and I'm just steadily watching the prices. Click, 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 up higher and higher and higher. Now, if you're trying to understand what 7.5% inflation means, I've got a handy article here from Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he says, if, if you're wondering what that means, 7.5% inflation, how does that affect me? Well, he says the rule of 72 can show you. This month, he says, inflation hit a new milestone in February. Annual inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, jumped to 7.5%. Now, you've probably felt the effects of inflation in your daily life. Trips to the grocery store are more expensive. Filling up your car is a budget buster. Maybe your rent has gone up on your latest lease. But what does that mean? that prices are 7.5% higher than the year before. How can we understand the effect of that number? Well, he says we can start by using some basic economic and financial tools. The first thing to note is that inflation is a rate, not a level. A rate is something that happens over time. Why does that matter? Well, imagine you spend $100 a week on groceries. Flash forward one year, those same groceries now cost you $107.50. Assuming the price increase happened throughout the economy... That means inflation was at a 7.5% annual rate according to the CPI measure. Now, imagine another year passes and the cost of those groceries remains at 107.50. If prices don't rise, then the annual rate of inflation has fallen to 0%. But notice even with 0% inflation in year two, the higher prices from year one don't go away. This is why it's important to realize that inflation is a rate rather than a level. And unless there's some per, some future deflation where prices fall, the prices will remain at permanently higher levels from 100 to 107.50, even if no further inflation occurs. Now, Peter Jacobson says it's possible, even likely, that wages will rise to match these higher prices, but there's no guarantee that this will happen before workers take a significant haircut in their real wealth relative to if there had been no inflation. Why? Well, first, because wages are unlikely to be the first prices to increase. So while your grocery bills are going up right away, your wage might not increase until your next annual review. Second, as prices increase, the value of money workers have in savings stays the same. So the rainy day fund you have tucked away for emergencies buys you less and less the longer inflation goes. Now, here he brings up the rule of 72. Now that we've seen how one-time inflation leads to permanently higher prices, what happens when inflation continues over time? What would it mean to maintain a 7.5% rate of inflation every year? After all, it's hard to visualize what it means for something to grow 7.5%. So our recent inflation report was an interesting milestone because of a trick used in finance to help think about how quickly things grow over time. And this trick is called the Rule of 72. Now, the Rule of 72 is this. If you take a constant rate of growth of anything, savings accounts, price levels, even the size of trees, and ignore the percent sign, then you divide 72 by that number. That will tell you how long it will be before the thing in question doubles in size. So let's consider the growth of prices. And he gets into some math here. So you'll have to visualize this along with me. If prices grow at a rate of 7.5% annually, we take 72 divided by 7.5, which comes to 9.6. What that means is if annual inflation continues at a rate of 7.5%, 
the prices of goods in the economy in general will double in less in just less than 10 years. Basically, once you jump above a rate of 7.2%, you're doubling prices every decade or sooner when it's higher. So consider our example. If grocery costs rise by 7.5%, that's 107.50 at the end of one year. The next year, that 107.50 also rises by 7.5% to 115.56. And if you do this multiplication 10 times once for each year, this brings the price of groceries at the end of 10 years to a little more than $208. As you can see, our prices have more than doubled. So a 7.5% rate of inflation is a milestone of sort. But the next question is, will this actually happen? Will inflation persist every year for 10 years? Now, the answer is at this point, it doesn't seem likely. But he says, as I explained in a previous article, a significant factor in rising prices is the fact that the Federal Reserve has increased the supply of money, as measured by M2, nearly 42% since January of 2020. And he has a graph from the St. Louis Federal Reserve showing that amazing increase. Ultimately, a 42% increase in the supply of money would eventually translate to prices increasing, on average, by the same amount. That's according to the quantity theory of money, or QTM, which was most famously developed by economist Milton Friedman. If the QTM is correct, an increase in the money supply of 100% would be required for prices to double, everything else held constant. We're going to come back to this article in just a few moments. And I th- Look, I'm not great at math, but if this makes sense to me, it should certainly make sense to you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. In my show notes today, I have an article by Peter Jacobson, an assistant professor of economics at Ottawa University. And this is from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he describes what 7.5% inflation means when you use the rule of 72 to illustrate how the price of everything will double in just under 10 years at that 7.5% inflation rate. So he says, as long as the Federal Reserve doesn't go completely off the rails, which is by no means a given, prices may not actually double in 10 years. But the rule of 72 still holds, and he says, and it contains a dire warning. And this is the warning. The fact that if inflation persisted at this same rate, it would take prices less than 10 years to double is reason for concern. Now, we're not under hyperinflation, but prices are certainly rising at a rate that troubles most Americans. And the rule of 72 helps us understand why their concern is warranted. Pretty interesting stuff. I'm going to shift gears here, and this is uh, this is going to be a topic that might actually rub a few people the wrong way, but I, I want to share this with you. It's a column from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation titled Ukraine, Why Do the Pentagon and CIA Hate Julian Assange? Whoa, what? What does the Pentagon and CIA's hatred of Julian Assange have to do with the current fighting in Ukraine? Well, here's a story that the media is very carefully avoiding. Thank you, Jacob Hornberger, for connecting the dots for us. 
He says, as most everyone knows, the hatred that U.S. officials have for Julian Assange has no bounds. For years, they have relentlessly and obsessively done everything they can to destroy, isolate, persecute, prosecute, incarcerate, torture, and hound the guy to death. They've even contemplated assassinating him through their omnipotent, dark side, non-reviewable power of assassination. A power that the U.S. national security establishment wields and exercises on a regular basis without any interference by the federal judiciary or the Congress. Why do they hate Assange so much? Because he disclosed to the American people dark side secrets of the U.S. national security establishment. In a national security state form of governmental structure, that is among the gravest offenses that any person can commit. Consider, for example, a certain cable that Assange's organization WikiLeaks revealed to the world. The cable was sent in 2009, 13 years ago by William J. Burns, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, and it stated in part, quote, NATO enlargement, particularly to Ukraine, remains an emotional and neuralgic issue for Russia. But strategic policy considerations also underlie strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even some claim civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. Additionally, the GOR and experts contain, continue to claim that NATO, that Ukrainian NATO membership would have a major impact on Russia's defense industry, Russian-Ukrainian family connections, and bilateral relations generally. During his annual review of Russia's foreign policy January 22nd through the 23rd, Foreign Minister Lavrov stressed that Russia had to view continued eastward expansion of NATO, particularly to Ukraine and Georgia, as a potential military threat. While Russia might believe statements from the West that NATO was not directed against Russia, when one looked at recent military activities in NATO countries, establishment of U.S. forward operating locations, etc., they had to be evaluated not by stated intentions, but by potential. While Russian opposition to the first round of NATO enlargement in the mid-1990s was strong, Russia now feels itself able to respond more forcefully to what it perceives as actions contrary to its national interests, end quote. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, keep in mind something important. U.S. Ambassador Burns became CIA director on March 19th, 2021. Why is that important? Because Burns has been the director of the CIA for almost a year before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In other words, Burns' cable constitutes conclusive proof that the Pentagon and CIA knew with absolute certainty what Russia's response would be if they threatened to have NATO absorb Ukraine. And Jacob Hornberger says, as he and others have pointed out, by threatening to absorb NATO, the Pentagon and CIA intentionally and deliberately cornered Russia into making an untenable choice. Number one, permit Ukraine to join NATO, which would thereby enable the Pentagon and CIA to install military bases, missiles, tanks, troops, and other weaponry on Russia's border, or two, invade Ukraine to prevent that from happening. By the way, he has links to three different articles that help to underscore this, this point. He says, do you see why they hate Assange so much? Do you see why they've gone after him so viciously? If WikiLeaks had not revealed Burns' cable, the Pentagon and the CIA could have acted innocent and labeled anyone who outlined their strategy as a conspiracy theorist. 
but the disclosure of Burns Cable foreclosed that possibility and revealed as an absolute certainty that both the Pentagon and the CIA knew that Russia, when placed in the corner in which the Pentagon and, in the corner in which the Pentagon and the CIA maneuvered it, would choose to invade Ukraine rather than permit the Pentagon and the CIA to install their military bases, missiles, tanks, troops, and other weaponry on Russia's border. Now, he says, I ask you a simple question. Which is more evil, Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the Pentagon and CIA's political gamesmanship that brought about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? After all, at the risk of stating the obvious, simply because Russia's invasion of Ukraine is evil doesn't convert the Pentagon and CIA's strategy to induce Russia to invade Ukraine into something good. Despite the evil of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Pentagon and CIA's political gamesmanship that produced Russia's invasion of Ukraine remains evil as well and is possibly even more evil. Now notice something important about the U.S. mainstream press. They focus exclusively on the evil of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but they don't even mention the evil of the Pentagon's and CIA's political gamesmanship that brought about that Russian invasion of Ukraine. Why is that? Hornberger says the Pentagon and CIA have a lot of assets within the mainstream press. Anyone who's on it, who honestly thinks that the CIA abandoned its Operation Mockingbird program after it became public is suffering from extreme naivete. Why would the CIA abandon a program in which mainstream journalists are available to spout the national security establishment's propaganda whenever called upon to do so? But what about American statists, especially those expressing outrage over Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Why aren't they as outraged over the Pentagon's and CIA's political maneuvering as they are at Russia's invasion of Ukraine? The answer is they too are focusing exclusively on Russia's invasion of Ukraine with no focus whatsoever on the evil of the role that the Pentagon and the CIA have played in producing Russia's invasion of of Ukraine. After all, the condemnation of both events are not mutually exclusive. One can easily condemn both. The answer lies in the extreme refusal of American statists to criticize or condemn the U.S. national security establishment. The Pentagon, the CIA, the NSA, which are the three principal components of the U.S. national security establishment, are a triune god to American statists. No different from the triune god that American Christians worship on Sundays. That's why, for example, American statists cheered when the CIA and Pentagon were doing to the people of Iraq and Afghanistan the same thing that Russia is now doing to the people of Ukraine. After all, for the past several years or even months, there could have been massive protests by American statists against how the Pentagon and CIA were using NATO to intentionally, knowingly, and deliberately bring about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Those protests could have conceivably pressured the Pentagon and the CIA to direct President Biden to publicly forswear NATO's absorption of Ukraine. If Biden had just made that simple announcement, there never would have been a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and all those dead Russian soldiers and Ukrainian people would still be alive today. But as we all know, no such protests ever took place. I'm going to come back to Jacob Hornberger's article in a few moments. Steal yourself. This is some pretty harsh truth. But I think it's a truth worth considering, and I think he raises all the right questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation. Why the Pentagon and the CIA hate Julian Assange. And he references an actual cable that was released by WikiLeaks. Uh, This was a cable sent back in 2009 that very clearly states that uh, the CIA and, uh, and also the Pentagon knew that Russia would not likely tolerate Ukraine being absorbed into NATO. I know this is very different than the uh, narrative that we are being told in much of the heritage media. And I, I'll gather that uh, for some people this may sound like, Brian, you're being very unpatriotic by, by not supporting, you know, um, all efforts against Russia. But I'm just suggesting that maybe, maybe if, even if Russia is, is completely wrong, it doesn't make what RCIA and Pentagon did right in maneuvering Russia and Ukraine into a situation where it was likely Russia would respond like this. Jacob Hornberger says, given the unswerving devotion to their political triune God, American statists could not even conceive of going down what to them would be an unpatriotic road, the road that entailed open opposition to their triune political God. And that's undoubtedly the big reason for the silence that characterizes American statists today toward what the Pentagon's and CIA's political gamesmanship toward Russia has wrought for the people of Ukraine. Now, he says it's worth mentioning the outcome of the Pentagon's and CIA's political gamesmanship. Massive death and destruction in Ukraine. A new and old official enemy for the U.S. that's now garnering the ire of the entire world. A massive rallying to the Pentagon and the CIA, possibly even more so than during the Cold War or after the 9-11 attacks. Unlimited taxpayer-funded largesse flooding into the coffers of the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA, and their ever-growing army of defense contractors. Ever-growing omnipotent power of the national security establishment within America's federal government structure. Ever more federal spending, debt, and inflation. The ever-expanding destruction of the rights and liberties of the American people. Greater greater possibility of all-out nuclear war between Russia and the United States. He says, but at least the Pentagon and the CIA's deadly, vicious, and destructive gamesmanship is there for all who care to see it. Is it any wonder why they hate Julian Assange? Now, I get it. That is a pretty harsh assessment. But I would invite you to, to really ask the tough questions, but is it true? Can you... Can you... Can you dismiss it? Just, well, it questions America, questions the flag. Or is it true? All that meddling, all that maneuvering and, and trying to police the world and steer other nations, and we condemn them for doing this that we have done ourselves. I think one of the most telling things is watching a former, uh, I think it was former Secretary of State uh, Condoleezza Rice sitting on a news program and being uh, being told by the interviewer, as we all know, invading a sovereign country is a war crime. And Condoleezza just nods her head thoughtfully. Yes, yes, it is. And I'm thinking, okay, that's just, that is un- unbearably uh, wrong that she would just solemnly nod like, oh, yes, of course, that's just self-evident. But it doesn't apply to us. If the U.S. government does it, well, somehow we're supposed to believe it's a good thing. Look, you can love your country. 
And I assume you do love your country. You wouldn't even give a program like this a chance. But loving your country does not mean you march in lockstep with whatever your government is doing at the particular moment. In fact, sometimes that love for country requires you to stick your neck out and stand up for your country by telling your government you're wrong and telling people you should not trust them. What they're doing is harming us. You know, as hard as it would be to stand up, you almost have to wonder if, does the world want to be deceived? Is it possible? I've got an article here by Kate McCall. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. I want you to hear what she has to say. She says, in October 2021, Facebook changed its brand name to Meta. We believe the metaverse will be the successor to the mobile internet, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in a speech announcing the change. We'll be able to feel present, like we're right here with people, no matter how far apart we actually are. Now, she says, never mind that this noble intention of connecting people is predicated on an almost $117 billion annual profit. A profit made largely by showing people only what they want to see and what will keep them coming back. She says Zuckerberg's statement, alluding as it does uh, to the emotional satisfaction of close human interaction, could have been written by a sophist, one who uses words for purposes other than the conveyance of reality, and particularly for personal gain. 20th century German philosopher Joseph Piper discussed sophistry in his 1970 book, Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. A brief and incisive work, the book focuses on the nature of language, of words, as a mediator between mankind and the reality he inhabits, the conduit to truth. It is through words, Piper wrote, that we can both grasp and communicate truth. This is the essential nature of language. However, when the sophists don't use language to communicate truth, they corrupt the very essence of language and also, therefore, of human existence. Words and language form the medium that sustains the common existence of the human spirit, Piper wrote. And so, if the word becomes corrupted, human existence itself will not remain unaffected and untainted. Now, unfortunately, this is what we are seeing unfold today with the Internet, with social media in general, and most especially with Zuckerberg's metaverse. Piper's words offer a prescient analysis of all these developments providing insight for those who have eyes to see past today's stream of digital consciousness. She says, man, as Aristotle observed, is a social animal. To communicate with others is fundamental to us. But when words are divorced from reality, Piper postulates, we lose our ability to communicate and ultimately cease to respect people as human beings. And despite this possibility of abuse, Piper goes on to state comfortingly, that all vehicles of language, song, print, film, broadcast, etc., are nevertheless designed to capture and communicate reality. But what about the metaverse? Piper, after all, was writing before the dawn of the Internet. Is social media designed to capture and communicate reality? Piper described a future kind of communication in chillingly prophetic fashion. It is entirely possible that the true and authentic reality is being drowned out by the countless superficial information bits noisily and breathlessly presented in propaganda fashion. Consequently, one may be entirely knowledgeable about a thousand details and nevertheless, because of ignorance regarding the core of the matter, remain without basic insight. Another German philosopher, Arnold Galen, labeled such ignorance a fundamental one created by technology and nourished by information. 
Now, Piper elaborated that the place of authentic reality is taken over by a fictitious reality, a pseudo-reality, deceptively appearing as being real, so much so that it becomes almost impossible anymore to discern the truth. One need only replace the term pseudo-reality with the term virtual reality to realize that the scenario Piper proposes as readily conceivable is here and that the upsurge of Facebook's meta will only accelerate the situation. Through the phenomenon Piper identifies, or though the phenomenon Piper identifies saturates almost all of the Internet, social media is perhaps the epitome of this, a constant stream of information completely devoid of real insight. Mundus volt decepti. I'm saying that wrong, I'm sure, but the world wants to be deceived. Could it be that through the Internet and other digital media, we've finally developed a means of communication that's designed to subvert the functions of words in human discourse? Have we entered an age where the line between fiction and reality has, by means of sophistry, become so blurred we cannot always tell the difference? The speech of sophists, Piper wrote, is driven by flattery, or language intended not to communicate reality but to get something from the listener. The sophist's statement itself may or may not be true. It is the intention that's key, an intention divorced from the essential truth-communicating nature of language. And we, being a fallen race, often prefer flattery to the truth. Piper painted for us the picture of the man enthralled by sophistic adulation. What the world really wants is flattery, and it does not matter how much of it is a lie, but the world at the same time also wants the right to disguise, so that the fact of being lied to can be easily ignored. As I enjoy being affirmed in my whims and praised for my foibles, I can also expect credibility to make it easy for me to believe that everything I hear, read, absorb, and watch is indeed true, important, worthwhile, and authentic. So here we have the perfect description of the echo chamber created by social media, curated news feeds, Google search suggestions, targeted advertising. On and on, the complex algorithms that drive the virtual world have a very specific purpose. They are there not to show us the truth, but to show us what we want to see. And too often, she says, we are more than willing to be deceived. Again, this is an article by Kate McColl. Published on intellectualtakeout.org. Yes, there is a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Long as you're stopping by there, mash that subscribe button, and I will send a copy of my show notes to your email inbox every morning when I publish these show notes. Stay with us. Final segment's coming up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have some great sponsors who make this program possible, including SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they happen to be located in St. George, Utah, my old stomping grounds, and they happen to be owned and run by uh, some of the finest people that I have ever had the privilege of knowing. That would be Teresa and Eric Alsop. This is a family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1984. They are, I believe, the third owners of the business. But, you know, the original founder of the business, still kicking around, still works on sewing machines, still very much a part of what they are doing. So if you or someone you know likes to sew, to embroider, does long-arm quilting, anything like that, you can buy the machines, you can buy the supplies, you can learn how to use those machines to their potential. And you can also get them all fixed. 
right there in one place. Click on the link. It'll take you right to their website. And uh, tell them thanks for being a sponsor of the show. Well, if you are looking for some solid suggestions on how to best prepare for the remainder of 2022, I'm going to point you toward Dr. Robert Malone, who has some pretty solid advice for anyone who is paying attention. Now, he says, you know, no matter what happens in, with Russia and Ukraine in the coming days, weeks, and months, we have entered a dark time. And the situation is dire. He says, I'm not going to go further into the issue here except to say it breaks my heart to hear of the destruction, injuries, and death. It's horrific for all people involved. But, he says, as some of you know, he and his wife, Jill, predicted the supply shortages well before they happened with the COVID alpha strain in 2020. So he says, once again, Jill has been doing some due diligence to help us in our little farming operation anticipate potential impacts and has come to the conclusion that we all need to be aware that more shortages and general economic hardships are likely on the way due to both the current economic situation and the Russia-Ukraine disruptions. So first things first, the first thing he does is discuss what does this Russia-Ukraine war mean in terms of how might it impact Americans? And these are just statistics, but they will help you make sense of, of why it might actually have some impact on us. Russia has the fifth largest economy in Europe, the world's 11th largest economy by nominal gross domestic product, and the sixth largest by purchasing power parity. Here are the top 10 Russian exports. Number one, mineral fuels, including oil. Number two, gems and precious metals. Number three, iron and steel. Number four, cereals. Number five, machinery, including computers. Number six, wood. Number seven, fertilizers. Pay close attention to that one because this is this is going to affect uh, what it's going to cost for farmers to plant their foods here in America this coming season. Number eight, copper. Number nine, aluminum. Number 10, fish. And that translates into these products being the top 10 exported from Russia. Things like crude oil, processed petroleum oils, gold, coal, wheat, platinum, petroleum gases, iron or non-alloy steel products, refined copper, unwrought alloys, and sawn wood. Now, the top imports into Russia are things like cars, packaged medications, vehicle parts, broadcasting equipment, planes, helicopters, and or spacecraft. So now let's look at economy, for, for the Ukrainian economy. They are ranked 64th out of 190 countries, so it's much smaller than Russia, Their top exports include cereals, iron, steel, animal, vegetable, fats, oils, and waxes, ores, slag, and ash. Also, uh, electrical machinery and equipment, machinery including computers, oil seeds, food industry waste, animal fodder, wood, articles of iron or steel. So, lumber, petroleum, precious metals, iron, and cereal are all going to be under increasing worldwide demand due to supply disruptions traceable to either of these countries. So, that means supply and pricing of many items are sure to be impacted. And this translates into yet more inflation. With insurance rates increasing and lumber and metal shortages shortages from both Russia and the world, Dr. Malone says, I think it's safe to assume that new housing costs will increase. Mortgage rates will climb unless kept artificially low, and the housing market will become unstable, as many will perceive that this is not the time to buy a new house. The federal government will be under increasing pressure to artificially support the industry through continuation of low interest rate loan programs at the federal level. However, 
The inflationary pressure will make it hard for the federal government to want to print money to support such low-interest loans. It puts them in a catch-22 with many opinions on what should be done. Now, he goes into some more detail here, but I want to get to some of the practical things. Number one, he says, be aware of global trends, especially the broad global trends. Use your own judgment. And above all, and I agree with this, do not rely on legacy media to tell you what to think and how to respond. They are not your friends. And if we've learned one thing from the past two years, it's that the legacy media cannot be trusted to tell the truth. They will spin everything in whatever way the government or World Economic Forum wants them to say. Now, he says, I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but we're not predicting the end times. But we are suggesting it would be uh, good home and farm practice to take a little time and invest some resources to prepare in case things take a turn for the worse. So with all the information that they're seeing, uh, predicting historic levels of inflation are likely to continue and may actually accelerate. That means a dollar saved today is going to be worth less tomorrow. And we now know that the overlords have no problems weaponizing the current, uh, the fiat currency, uh, banking, and finance system for political purposes. So he says, frankly, here on the farm, we're torn about what to do in terms of financial management. So as usual, we try to think global and act local. In our case, that translates into sinking cash into upgrading farm infrastructure, fences, buildings, etc., using local sawmills and skilled labor. Now, you should do your own due diligence and thinking about how you and your family should plan and adapt. But here's what his preparedness list looks like. Keep your cars close to filled with gas or diesel. Fuel prices will go up and availability will go down. If you keep a diesel tank for your rural farm, keep it filled. If you have liquid petroleum, keep the tanks well stocked. Also, if you have a barbecue, keep the tanks full or charcoal on hand. That way there's a way to cook and boil water. If you have a fireplace, make sure you have a supply of wood or fuel if it is still cold in your area. If you have a generator for you rural folk, make sure that it's working and has fuel. Now is the time to spend your money wisely. Despite the inflation, having savings in some form of liquid assets provides security. Our friends that are finance specialists are telling us or advising us, he says, that a major economic disruption is likely, and in those situations, like a Wall Street crash, for example, cash is king. Here's another bit of good advice. Consider buying used, particularly for big items. Have backup systems in place, such as data storage, disk drives, iCloud, etc. Be prepared for Internet disruptions. He says, do not expect to see the price of cars to come down. Availability of new cars will continue to be low. Supply chains and availability for computers, machines, electronics, car parts, etc. will be disrupted even more than they already are. He advises, keep a little cash at home. Keep your credit up and your card balances low. When the economy gets tough, loans become harder to get. Airplane tickets will go up, so if you know about upcoming travel, book now. Keep the basics well stocked. Make sure you have supplies to live comfortably for at least two weeks, if not more. For imported items, be prepared for them to be harder to come by and adjust accordingly, both by stocking up when possible and or finding substitutions. Just to illustrate, in our case, supply chain for tractor parts has become a problem. If you are a prepper, this may be the time to reevaluate and restock. He says, keep water in the house. We can and should expect electric grid issues, unknown where they will occur and for how long. So for him, he says, that means a three-day supply of drinking water for people and animals, also a bucket or source of water kept near the house 
for flushing toilets. So just keep the basics on hand. Prepare for black and brownouts. They may or may not happen, but be prepared. Now, he also says work on your metabolic health. That means working on weight, getting more exercise. Vitamin D3, make sure your blood levels are high enough. Zinc and a good multivitamin are important. Don't let your prescriptions or medications run low. And he says use urgent care centers instead of hospitals. The wait time is generally lower and many COVID policies are still in place. Hospitals are not safe places and should be avoided unless acutely ill. I like this one too. Seek alternative news sources. Do not rely on a single source for information. And remember, the U.S. government will give us a load of propaganda in times of stress. So listen with a critical ear and remember that the objectivity of most social media and search engines has been compromised. He says most mainstream media has been infiltrated with government spooks. Keep that in mind. As an aside, in case of an Internet blackout or brownout, many are building AM and ham radio capabilities. Even now, AM radio, some of which is broadcast from out of country, like in Mexico, is a good place for news in a major emergency if other sources are down. COVID and health-related information, he says, is still being withheld. Don't rely on mainstream news sources as your primary information source for COVID. Be flexible and build community. Keep an eye on how you can help your neighbors and friends, particularly those who are elderly, frail, and or isolated. I mean, this seems like pretty solid advice to me. I've got a link to his article in today's show notes. Access them at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.